How many of you remember that old chorus, Oh, How He Loves You and Me? Raise your hand. When's the last time you sang that? I mean, isn't that just, just fascinating? Cut your teeth on those early Maranatha choruses. You know, they kind of sustained you during those times. Let's sing that this morning. Will you help me sing that this morning? You ready? Can I have, can I have the key, please? <laughs> oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. It's our new feature, Old Songs of Calvary. Anyway. (laughs) You think I'm kidding. But anyway, if you have a Bible this morning, and I hope you do. If you don't, we'll get you one. Open it to the book of Acts in the New Testament and to chapter 13. We're studying through the book of Acts, a chapter at a time. Well, actually, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, a few verses at a time would be more accurate. Our text this morning will be Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. The topic there, Paul must square off against Elimus the sorcerer, who is trying to keep proconsul Sergius Paulus from getting saved. The title of our message, Sorcerer Smackdown. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And he said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord." Let's pray together. Father, we love this book of Acts. It's just the story of the first church, Lord, there in the first century. Uh, And it's really our story as well. Uh, They had the baptism with and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and so do we, Lord. And they went out sharing the gospel and being witnesses for you, and and so do we. And so I pray that we would make a connection this morning with uh, the events of this chapter. They seem a little bit odd to us and uh, beyond what we would encounter, Lord, but in many ways they're just like the world we find ourselves in. And I pray that we would see that, be refreshed and encouraged by it, and uh, emboldened, 
Lord, to uh, go out and just be the witnesses that you've called us to be. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Sooner or later, you will be sought out by someone who is looking for answers. They've heard you talk about Jesus or they've seen the difference your relationship with him makes in your daily living. You're excited. You begin to share the grace of God with them. And then things can get quirky. Someone's at the door. The phone keeps ringing. Someone else interjects themselves into your conversation and starts taking it off track. Or maybe a sorcerer shows up to withstand your witness. That happens all the time. (laughs) Well, that's what happened to Paul and Barnabas. Sergius Paulus had called for them to come and share with him about the Lord. What a great opportunity. Hey, this is Sergius Paul. I'm the proconsul. I'm the head guy. I'd like to hear about God from you guys. But Elimus withstood them. However, the sorcerer found he was no match for the spirit-filled man. Whether it's a cell phone or a sorcerer, the interruptions are no match for you when you are filled with the spirit. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, You need not be intimidated when your witness is withstood. And number two, you need to be empowered when your witness is withstood. And so first of all, let's look in verses four through eight. You need not be intimidated when your witness is withstood. Barnabas and Saul, who is the apostle Paul, were sent out by the Holy Spirit to talk about Jesus. So are you and I. They were sent to the island of Cyprus where we wish we were sent. First service didn't think that was cute either. (laughs) We are sent to work or to school. Wherever we find ourselves is where we've been sent to witness. Let's see what we can learn from Barnabas and Paul that will help us in our witness. And so in verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And so this sets up the ministry to the Gentile population of the island of Cyprus. We're not sure why the Holy Spirit sent them to Cyprus. We do know that it was Barnabas' home. And so it can serve as a reminder to us to not forget our witness at home. Ministering to others can be a lot more exciting than living out the Christian life day by day at home. But if Jesus makes no difference in my home life, then what do I really have to share with others? When I share with others this radical change that the Lord Jesus has made in my life, it needs to work itself out at home and among those that I spend most of my time with. Uh, And so it's a reminder to begin right, really right where you are in your home to be a witness for the Lord. Now, the strategy Barnabas and Paul will employ in their missions is to go to the Jewish synagogues. Visitors to the Jewish synagogues, Jewish visitors, would be invited to read from the scriptures and comment. And so this was a perfect opening, a great open door for Paul and Barnabas to be invited to share from the scriptures. And I'm sure that they picked scriptures where they could talk about Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. And so this is a great open door to share, and, and, and of, of, this would be just a great way to begin to witness to people. And even though their witness was to go out to the Gentiles, 
They always started in the Jewish synagogue. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The gospel doesn't change, but we can and should adapt our delivery of the message to our audience. I remember when we would go to the Philippines back in the mid-80s, we were taking a lot of trips over to the Philippines, and we found over time that uh, one of the best ways of ministering at that time to the Filipino people was to take them to John and the episode with Nicodemus and to ask them if they had been born again because the population was mostly Roman Catholic and so they understood the Bible, they knew about Jesus, they believed in God, they believed Jesus was the Son of God, all of that. And, and then we would say, but have you been born again? No. And then we would read to them from John there, and uh, we'd get to John 3.16, and we'd ask them if they'd like to receive Christ and be born again. And the vast majority of them would say yes, because we were springboarding from what they already knew and showing them right out of the Scripture uh, what the Lord was telling them. And so it was a great way to, to minister to them. Wouldn't have done us much good to go over there and start arguing about evolution or all of these other topics that we want to talk about. We met them where they were at. And so there's nothing wrong with that. We should make every effort to know something about the people we're ministering to and then try to meet them where they're at. One of the things I'm appreciating listening to Jake and Gino teach on Sunday nights about how to share with the cults and, and uh, the people that come to your door is meeting them where they're at, not just, you know, blowing their doors off, but hey, this is what they are taught to say, and here's some things that you can meet them where they're at. And so it's a, it's a good technique. John, also called Mark or John Mark, was tagging along with cousin Barnabas and with Paul, serving as their assistant. What a great opportunity he had. He was an intern with the apostle Paul. I mean, this was a coveted internship, if there was such a thing. We'll see, however, that he was not quite up for the task. He'll, he's going to leave them at some point and return home, and it's going to cause considerable friction between Barnabas and Paul. We'll get to that in our studies in Acts. Assistants are great unless you have to assist them. At work, have you ever hired somebody and then you had to do their work for them? Uh, you, you know, you, you hired them to help you and then you help them. Uh, there's something wrong with that. Assistants are great. If you find yourself in the place of an assistant, do it so that the person or the persons you are assisting have no worries about what they are supposed to do. Do what you're supposed to do so that they can do what they're supposed to do. When I was the assistant pastor down at Calvary San Bernardino, it was my primary objective to get through Sunday so that my pastor had no worries about anything else other than teaching the Word of God. Uh, now, I find myself uh, at the Lamore Police Department where I'm the chaplain. I am the absolute lowest person on that totem pole. There's nobody lower than me. I, and, and I like that because I, and I feel like I have, I, I'm there to assist and uh, stay out of the way until they need me, and then when they need me, I can. And so it's, being an assistant, it's a, it's a noble thing. It's a wonderful thing. And so if you're in any position to assist in the work of the ministry, know what you're supposed to do, do it with all your heart so that other people are free to do what God's called them to do, and the Holy Spirit is set free to minister to everyone. 
Acts 13.6 says, Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew named Bar-Jesus. Now Luke, the author of Acts, overlooks months of ministry on Cyprus and focuses our attention on this one episode. Let's look at how he described this man that they encountered. First, he says he was a sorcerer. Now, there were some occultic practices for sure, but you need to get out of your mind. This guy is not a Satanist. The word is magi. It describes the wise men of that era who mixed science with the occult. They were both astrologers and astronomers. They were alchemists and chemists. And so they looked at everything that was out there as far as scientific information, pseudoscientific information, paranormal information, and they just mixed everything together in in an integration. It says he was a false prophet. This tells us that he was claiming authority from God that he had not received. When he spoke, he said he was speaking for God. He was a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. All of that is a description of of one thing. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, and so a Jew named son of Jesus means that he was claiming to be a true follower of the Jewish Messiah. And then finally in verse 8, we're going to see that he's called Elimus. Elimus is roughly the Arabic equivalent of the word magi, but it's being used in, in the way of having a title after your name. He was the sorcerer Elimus. It's like today we would have a master of divinity or a doctor of theology after our name. And so this tells us that he thought himself superior on account of his either formal or informal education in these various disciplines. Now, all of these have their modern counterparts. For example, if a sorcerer is someone who mixes the occult or a pseudoscience with Scripture, we have lots of candidates for that. There are many Christians who are bringing in to the church occultic practices. About 20 years ago, when I first came to Hanford, uh, there was a book out. It was all the rage at that time. I'm not sure when it was published, but... It was uh, by a professed Christian. It was called The Fourth Dimension. And the premise of the book was that out in the universe, there is a fourth dimension. And people who practice the occult have learned how to tap into the fourth dimension. And so why don't we as Christians learn how to tap into the fourth dimension? They use it for evil. We use it for good. It sounds like Star Wars, uh, you know. But uh, that was very prevalent. There was a, a, a lot of churches were into that, even in this area. They were selling that book. In fact, I had a conversation with a pastor at a church here who took, uh, uh, he, he didn't like the fact that I had spoken out against the book and wanted to, uh, you know, show me how wonderful this was and what was wrong with it. And so, and so there are a lot of candidates, you know, people bring in inner healing and astral projection. One of the most popular books in Christianity over the past two decades has been Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline. Probably many of us have it on our shelves and haven't read it because it's given to us. There is a chapter, I think that it was uh, now abridged, but there, I have the book where there's a chapter where he teaches you how to leave your body and in, in a, an intense time of prayer where you leave your body and just kind of float around. 
And, and this is just uh, occultic mysticism that is being brought into the church. And so it's out there. Uh, pseudoscience. Uh, my favorite pseudoscience is psychology. Uh, you know, where, where people come along and they say, well, the Bible is not enough. Uh, we need these other psychotherapeutic techniques, uh, you know, the healing of memories and hypnosis and these various things to come in. And, and when you get really into it, you find out that psychology, for the most part, is a pseudoscience. It's not a real science. It's a philosophy. In fact, it's many philosophies on what's wrong with people and how to make people right. I know what's wrong with people. It's sin. I know how to make them right. It's Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus Christ and Sigmund Freud. He says, oh, now that you know Jesus, lay down and let's talk about your mother. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's crazy. And so we laugh about it, but most large churches in America today, if you go to counseling, you get hooked up with a staff psychologist, someone who is trained in psychotherapy and psychological methodology uh, in order to help you. It's a deadly mixture. And so this is all, you know, just don't think Elimus the sorcerer is like Madame Sophia off the freeway. I mean, this is just, he's not some weird wizard. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we deal with every day. And so in verse 7, it says, Elimus was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, for you history buffs, Roman provinces were of two types. One type required troops to enforce Roman law and was administrated by the emperor himself. These were places that didn't want to be conquered by Rome, and uh, he had to enforce the peace. The other type of province enjoyed Roman rule. They did not, therefore, require troops. That was ruled by the Roman Senate through a proconsul. Sergius Paulus was the proconsul, and we're told he was intelligent. The word actually means he liked to reason things out, and he was a seeker after truth. This tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us why he had Elimus around. Elimus set himself up on the island of Cyprus as somebody who knew Truth, spiritual truth. And so he was the closest thing to knowing spiritual truth, and so Sergius Paulus was trying to learn from him. He was hungry. When he heard about the ministry of Barnabas and Paul, he sought them out to hear what they had to say. He was a hungry man. People are hungry for spiritual things. There are people all around us who will sooner or later seek to hear the word of God through us. I was watching something the other day on one of the educational channels, and they were talking about how at the turn of, uh, the, uh, in the 1900s, people were predicting that by the end of that century, the, the 20th century, uh, religion would have been completely died out because of scientific discovery and atheism and rational thought and all of this explosion of knowledge. And in point of fact, people are looking into weirder spiritual things now than they ever have. There's a, literally an occult explosion because people, the more we learn scientifically, the more disconnected we feel from reality, and people are looking for spiritual truths. They're looking in all the wrong places, but they're looking. 
And people are going to eventually seek you out. That's why God has put you where you are. When they do seek you out, chances are interruptions are going to come fast and furious. And so in verse 8, but Elimus the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elimus had a lot in his arsenal to withstand the truth. He knew and acknowledged the scriptures, but he polluted them with the religions and philosophies of man. He spoke as though he had the authority of God. He seemed connected to the truth because he was a Jew who professed to be looking for the Messiah. And he had impressive worldly titles. He sounds like an evolutionist or a psychologist or a liberal theologian. It sounds like people who borrow the arguments of these supposedly learned men in order to withstand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or the opposition may come from the person themselves. Even though they're hungry for spiritual things, when you begin to share with them, a spiritual battle ensues, and, and they come up with these things that they've heard on the Discovery Channel or from some sorcerer out in the world, and they say, well, I think there's, you know, the Bible is full of errors, or you don't believe in a literal Genesis, do you? There wasn't a real Adam and Eve, and they have all of these kinds of arguments that come against you, and then there's interruptions, as I said. And so really there is a vast arsenal marshaled against you and your witness. That is a, when you're sharing with somebody that is spiritually hungry, that is a fierce and intense battle. And that's what Luke is showing us. Uh, this is probably, you know, obviously a very dramatic one, but he, he's trying to tell us, hey, whenever the gospel is shared and souls are at stake, it is like a cage fight. I mean, it's a battle. Uh, the devil is not going to give, he's not, oh, well, you know, let him go. Uh, and so there's a battle and any kind of interruption, babies crying, uh, you know, whatever it might be, that's the time for it. And, and so you're going to have to face these things. And it's easy to become intimidated. Don't. You don't need to know everything in order to refute those who stand in the way of a person's salvation. You only need to know what you already know. You only need to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen from the dead. If you know that, the rest is up to God. You need not be intimidated because you can be empowered. Verses 9 through 12, you need to be empowered when your witness is withstood. As I mentioned, this confrontation between Elimus and Paul, it's dramatic. It is extreme. But it is not unlike the confrontations you might have. You too face the sorcerers and the false prophets, the phony followers, and those who claim superior intellect. They just have different names today. How can you hope to prevail? After all, you're not an apostle like Paul. Well, Paul is not described as the apostle Paul using his apostolic authority. He is only described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is something that you and I can also experience. And so in verse 9, then Saul, who is also called Paul, and who will be called Paul now for the rest of this book, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. 
Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul his Roman name. We're going to talk about the being filled with the Holy Spirit in just a moment. But in verse 10, he said, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Should we ever address a person that way? Well, the answer, of course, is if we are led by the Spirit to do so. When a soul or souls are at stake, we must be as bold as the situation requires. Here's the thing. We don't really know exactly how Elimus withstood Paul and Barnabas. We're reading a, a summary. Luke is telling us, everything we need to know under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we can, you know, step back and think what this might have been like. Uh, you get the impression that Paul and Barnabas showed up and immediately he started, you know, looking at Elimus and saying, you son of the devil, get out of here, you know, and stuff. We don't know if that's what happened. We know that Elimus withstood them. And his opposition may have been fierce. He may have been like a cornered beast. In addition to just being wrong, knowing that he was a charlatan, uh, you know, and not really having the truth, he sought to lose the ear of the proconsul. I'm sure that's a position that he liked. I mean, he liked being the magi of Cyprus. And so there are a lot of factors there. And, and he may have mounted a vicious and cruel attack against Paul and Barnabas. In fact, I think he did. And Paul, at some point, was led by the Holy Spirit to meet it at a level that was necessary. He says that Elimus was full of deceit and fraud. So are all those who try to mix the impure religions and philosophies of man with the pure word of God. What do you need besides what God has given us? Anything else is a deception, and it's fraudulent. Peter will tell us in his epistles, everything we need for life and godliness is in the Word of God. Elimus was the son of the devil. Now, that doesn't mean he was possessed or that he was a Satanist. It only means that he was unsaved, that he was lost in his trespasses and sins. It means he remained a man with only a natural birth who needed to be born again. It says he was the enemy of all righteousness who perverted the straight ways of the Lord. Righteousness, or getting right with God, could not be achieved in any of the ways Elimus thought or taught. It must be received as a gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Elimus' teachings would keep people on the broad path that leads to destruction and thus keep them off the Lord's straight path. And so really, looking at it this way, Paul was speaking the truth in love. Because it wasn't just Sergius Paulus's soul that was at stake. God was reaching out to Elimus as well. And this seems to be indicated in verse 11 where you read, And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Notice it says he would be this way for a time. That tells us this blindness was not a punishment, but that it had a purpose. And two things at least suggest themselves. First of all, the physical blindness of Elimus could represent to him his own spiritual blindness. He thought he was leading others in some truth, but he was now being shown that he was the one who needed to be led. 
Secondly, this has to remind us of another person who was struck with temporary blindness for a time. Paul himself had been struck blind on the road to Damascus when he was saved. This is an indication that Elimus could emerge from his blindness a saved man. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. When you first read this, I think you have a natural tendency to think of Elimus as the devil himself standing in the way of uh, Sergius Paulus and, and just, hey, cast that guy away. But in point of fact, Paul is speaking the truth in love, giving Elimus space to repent. Yes, he's moving him out of the way so that Sergius Paulus can hear the faith and, and turn to Jesus Christ, but he's not discounting this man either. And so while Paul's words initially seem harsh, they were the right words spoken in the necessary tone to bring the best result. We don't know what happened to Elimus after his blindness ended, but we do know that Sergius Paulus was wonderfully saved. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now notice he saw what had been done, but what astonished him was the teaching of the Lord. Now this obviously has to do with Paul's presenting of the gospel to him, but it might also mean that he understood what had been done was done for him so that he might believe the gospel and be saved. In other words, it dawned on him that he had been hindered from knowing the truth, but that God had sent his representatives, his messengers, to move that obstacle and that opposition out of the way so that he, Sergius Paulus, a man serving on the island of Cyprus as proconsul to a Roman government could be spoken to by the creator of the universe so that the God who made that island and everything on it and everything around it could speak to his soul, show him his need of salvation, introduce him to his son, Jesus Christ, save him for time and for eternity. Isn't it wonderful? Aren't you astonished at the teaching of the Lord when you came to know Christ, did it not astonish you? Maybe you didn't think of it that way, but was it not astonishing that in all the universe with everything that's going on in the world and in the universe, God was speaking to you personally, revealing himself to you, dealing with your sins, taking them and throwing them into the sea, getting rid of them so that you could know him and have a relationship with him. David lay outside one night as a shepherd and he said, what is man that you are mindful of him? It blew his mind. Looking at the stars and the vastness of the universe and, and you know, back when you could see the stars. You know, in, in one of those beautiful night skies, you know, and, and just like, wow, Lord, you think about me. You love me. Sergius Paulus was astonished, and he believed the teaching of the Lord. We've kept in reserve the thing that made all this possible. Paul, we were told, was filled with the Holy Spirit. In previous studies, we've discussed the various relationships a believer can or uh, has with the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the Holy Spirit being with you before you believe, seeking to draw you to Christ. We've talked about Him coming in you when you believe to indwell you. 
We've talked about Him coming upon you in the baptism of the Spirit, which happens either simultaneously with your salvation or can happen subsequently. And we've mentioned the command to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Rather than rehash all that, I want to suggest a simple way of understanding being filled. I think it can be understood using three words. The first word is the word person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is, in fact, the third person of the Trinity. He is God, and He has all the wonderful attributes of God. The next word would be presence. This wonderful person, God the Holy Spirit, God the third person of the Trinity, is always present. He is present with the sinner, seeking to draw him or her to Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, he is present in you. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except the Spirit is in him. And Jesus further told us on the night before he was crucified, he said that he was leaving for heaven, but he would send another comforter who would come alongside of us to lead us and to guide us. And that leads us to our third word, which is power. It is the result of understanding that the person we're talking about is present with you always in every situation. Because God is personally present, I can always count on power that is sufficient for every situation. If I need to look at a sorcerer and say, you son of the devil, I will have power sufficient to do that. I think sometimes we lack, bold, I lack boldness because I forget these three simple things. The Holy Spirit is a person always present with me and in my situation with more than sufficient power to deal with whatever is happening. Doesn't mean everyone I share with or you share with is going to receive Christ. That didn't happen even for the disciples and the apostles. But it does mean that we are sufficient for the task. And so when I go home, when I go to work, when I go to school, when I go away to school, the person of the Holy Spirit is present with me He's present in me. He comes upon me. He's in that situation. And I need to just be a witness for Jesus Christ. I don't need to know everything that the sorcerer knows. I don't need to know everything that the scientist or the pseudoscientist knows. I don't need to know everything about world religions. I don't need to have degrees after my name or any of those things. I just need to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If that's all I know, it's enough to save me. It's enough to share with others and let God do the rest. It's a wonderfully liberating and empowering understanding. The person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's value to it. We've, we've looked at theologically and, uh, you know, textually what all of these things mean and how we're filled with the Spirit and what it means. But just on a day-to-day -day level, just where, where the rubber meets the road, as J. Vernon McGee would say, when I'm at home and at work and at school, wherever I am, and, and those, those oppositions are there, that comes to, and I think, oh, I just can't share, I don't know what to say and all that. All I need to really remember is that Jesus said, I'm going to give you another comforter just like me. He's going to be in you. 
He's going to come upon you. He's going to be with the unbeliever you're sharing with. And so just talk about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Tell people what you know about the Lord. One of my favorite episodes there in the Gospel of John, the man who was born blind, and Jesus healed him, and they kept hammering him and hammering him. Who was it that healed you? What did he say? How did he do it? And finally, the guy said, look, you guys are the geniuses here. You guys are the theological giants. I mean, you, you should, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm nothing. I've been, you know, I'm just a, a guy that's been blind since birth. I can't tell you, you know, they kept asking him, who sinned, you or your parents and all. And, and he said, I know this one thing. I was blind, and now I see nanny, nanny, nanny. <laughs> and they kicked him out of the synagogue. They disfellowshipped him from them. They say, you're nobody. Just, but that was his testimony. It was power sufficient for his situation. I mean, when you were a Jew who had been born blind, and, uh, you know, in that situation, and everybody, their idea was that you or your parents sinned. Either you sinned in the womb, or your parents sinned, or you were conceived sinfully. You're not even really a person. And you're standing in front of the council. I mean, these are the men. These are the guys. These are the spiritual giants. It doesn't get any more confrontational than that. But he was able to say, I'll just tell you what I do know, and you know it too. I was blind, and now I see. So you figure it out. And in his case, it offended them, and they put him out. But he saw Jesus, and he walked with Jesus. And, and so, you know, the, the result isn't ours to worry about. All we need to do is realize we have this person present empowering us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for their simplicity. We thank you how they mirror and represent situations we find ourselves in every day. Lord, there are sorcerers in our experience, Elimuses. Uh, there are those who are claiming to be true followers of Jesus Christ, those who say they know the Scripture, all of these things, Lord. Some of them are creeping into churches. Others are obviously secular. It doesn't matter, Lord. We clear all of that away with this study this morning and just stand before you as your witnesses of what you have definitely done in our lives. And I pray that we would be emboldened, not because we've done something, but because you've done something. You've saved us and filled us and come upon us. And you've put us in situations where your power will be sufficient for what we need to say and what we need to do. And I pray that we would no longer be intimidated, Lord, but that we would be filled. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, let's stand together. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a Sergius Paulus, you're open and searching for the truth, come down, come forward, pray with one of the guys. Uh, they'd love to share Christ with you. Uh, maybe you're a Christian and you, you require prayer this morning. You want to pray for something? Come on down. Let us pray for you. Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, we'll be over in the fellowship hall with our monthly time of communion. That's a special, sweet time. Even if you don't normally come on Wednesday nights, uh, make uh, plans to come this Wednesday night to share communion with the family of believers and with your family as well. Uh, you'll will not regret it. It's sweet. May God bless you. May God keep you in Jesus' name. Amen.
changing, never changing, always knowing, always knowing, knowing all, knowing all. You are Lord, you are Lord, you are God, you are God, most high, most high. You are Lord, you are Lord, you are God, you are Everlasting, everlasting, ever changing, always knowing, knowing all. You are Lord, you are Lord, you are God, you are God, most high. You are Lord, you are God. Yeah. 